thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade off my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In our last pre-recorded set of shows, we discussed the impact of the rapid onset of the computer and internet ages on a single one or two generation set of people, on how they live their lives, what they prioritize, and how they think and operate. Most importantly, we closed by briefly reviewing a few studies that documented the social distancing and stunted or even antisocial behavior that internet communications and social media have wrought. It is indeed ironic that these new innovations that should foster a new level of social connectedness should make people so disconnected. In our last show, broadcast live in the studio, our friend Adam shared a recent news story of a young lady in a very cloistered religious family with obvious psychological issues who exhibited disturbing tendencies but did not result in any online intervention on her behalf before she and her family came to a tragic end. This week, we will explore the next dimension of the impact of the electronic age on ourselves. The effect it has not on our outer relationships and interactions, but rather between our own ears and its impact on our eternal thought processes and perceptions far beyond our own recollections, and then proceed into the most mysterious, symbolic, mystical trigger, that of the subconscious altering memes. We will begin with some academic studies to give our findings legitimacy, so they aren't based on some hearsay or internet rumor mill. First, we will discuss a paper from the June 2020 Dialogues in Clinical Science Journal entitled, Brain Health Consequences of Digital Technology Use from the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences 
and the Semmel Institute of Neuroscience and Human Behavior at UCLA. They write there that, quote, harmful effects of extensive screen time and technology use include heightened attention deficit systems, symptoms, impaired emotional and social intelligence, technology addiction, social isolation, impaired brain development, and disrupted sleep. But they add that even video games can help portions of brain health, as some programs and games can improve memory, multitasking skills, and other cognitive abilities. Curiously, they add that, quote, functional imaging scans show that internet-naive older adults who learn to search online show significant increases in brain neural activity during simulated internet searches. Now, they note that actually one out of four adults are online most of the time. They add that online searching can strengthen neural circuits, but that, quote, Persistent multitasking that is characteristic of most technology users impairs cognitive performance, i.e. They, they can't concentrate and focus. They also add that, quote, multiple story, studies have drawn a link between computer use or extensive screen time, like watching television or playing video games, and symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. And in citing some, they note that it affects all ages, but particularly young people, even after just months of exposure to such. They note studies that showed gamers could not read emotions quickly on faces, and that, quote, because of concern that a young developing brain may be particularly sensitive to chronic exposure to computers, smartphones, tablets, or televisions, the, Academy, the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended that parents limit screen time for children aged two years or younger when the brain is particularly malleable. They showed that with only four hours a day of media, in five days, children without electronics can detect emotions and read social surroundings much better than those that are with such exposure. Now, another 2020 academic study was published by the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, a part of the National Institutes of Health, entitled Exploring the Impact of Internet Use on Memory and Attention Processes. They note that, quote, the strong correlations between neural processes implicated in both online and offline social interactions further illustrate how artificial aspects of social media platforms for example, the quantitative metrics of popularity, and such as likes of posted content and explicit friendship requests or acceptance, can have real-world social consequences. For instance, compelling evidence has recently demonstrated that being subjected to online rejection evokes the same neural responses as those seen in real-world rejection. They add that, quote, the available data support the hypothesis that engaging in excessive media multitasking reduces performance in sustained concentration tests. Additionally, recent experimental studies have found that even brief interaction with hyperlinked websites can produce notable immediate reductions in concentration capacities, deficits that can persist for a short duration even after ceasing the Internet usage. They write that, quote, a number of empirical studies have found that using the Internet for information gathering tasks 
does accelerate the process, but appears to fail in recruiting certain patterns of brain activation important for long-term storage of retrieved information. They also write that, quote, a 2017 review of identified structural changes or deficits in brain regions associated with attention control, reward processing, and motivation in those with what they call IUDs, or Internet Use Disorders, compared to healthy controls. And they noted 15 studies that found that individuals with IUDs had over three times higher likelihood of ADHD than healthy controls. Now, looking back at the population as a whole, they write that, quote, a recent study examining the effects of the Internet on collective attention span, referring to the amount of attention a particular topic receives on a population level, found, quote, strong evidence that over time, shorter intervals of collective attention are given to individual topics. For example, the study first examined 24-hour usage of the top 50 most used Twitter hashtags around the world, sampled across 43 billion tweets. Results showed that whereas a highly popular hashtag stayed within the top 50 for 17 and a half hours in 2013, this gradually decreased over time, with top 50 hashtags maintaining their position for only 11.9 hours by 2016, just three years later, showing that the abundance of information available today is indeed shortening the attention spans of the population. They write that, quote, Neuroimaging studies have shown that individuals' numbers of Facebook social connections, their Facebook friends, can predict the gray matter volume of particular brain regions, such as in the right uh, anterior cortex, while their real-world social networks or real-world friends holds little relationship with gray matter volume in these regions. Similarly, Large amounts of internet usage, and particularly media multitasking, are correlated with reduced gray matter volume in the anterior cingulate cortex and other prefrontal regions associated with sustaining concentration and ignoring distractor stimuli. And that large quantities of internet use are associated with a reduced volume of the brain regions associated with cognitive control, hypothetically due to the internet usage encouraging high levels of flicking between information sources, i.e. multitasking, at the expense of brain circuitry used in sustained concentration. In other words, our brains have literally been rewired and reshaped physically by the internet. Now, the Ohio State Medical Center also chimed in in 2020 on the effects that they had documented online they write that, quote, since using the internet often involves our ability to multitask between different settings and somehow trains our brains to quickly shift focus to the stream of pop-ups, prompts, and notifications, this may in fact interfere with our ability to maintain focus on a particular cognitive task for an extended time. While multitasking may be a good practice for shifting focus, it may also weaken our ability to maintain focus on one area for an extended period of time. So it may make us more easily distractible because it reduces our ability to ignore distractions. Well, I for one am so glad that I finished my academic studies 
before broadband internet really took off. Cable TV was bad enough. As a person with intense interest in lots of subject areas and, and a news hound, with the motives to pass on important developments to followers, as well as meeting my duties to be an informed family member and citizen, I'm keenly vulnerable to such impacts. And now notice how I am diverted by shiny objects and find it hard to focus on lengthy, deep writing tasks I know I need to do. Supernatural-minded people forget that one of the greatest diabolical attacks on us, listen, is not the clearly seen frontal attacks, but rather the distractions that divert us from the path of our destiny and purpose and our most important task to accomplish such and the dedication we need to apply to it. I've learned the great two lessons in life, one of which I can do anything. I learned that early in life, regardless of limitations or humble origins, and you know the internet can help you with that. But the lesson later in life is that I am very mortal and limited, and thus I can't do everything. And the internet, for a voracious reader and studier like me, requires a discipline that I don't always reflect. They add that, quote, in addition to its negative effects on cognition, excessive internet use has been associated with a higher risk for depression and anxiety and can make us feel isolated and overwhelmed. Now, the American Psychiatric Association commented in 2019 on a recent study published by the journal World Psychiatry. Now, they echo the Ohio State and other researchers saying that, quote, the stream of online information and images across multiple media sources encourages us to rapidly switch attention and multitask rather than maintain focus and may be affecting our ability to concentrate. Research is beginning to show this behavior may be contributing to our increased distractibility and reduced ability to sustain attention. Smartphones have also led to many of us frequently checking your phone for news, social media, or personal contact. This behavior is thought to be reinforced by the, quote, information reward we get with new information. Also, they add the rapid access of unlimited information requires us to remember much less. We don't have to learn or remember things we can easily look up or retrieve online. And this affects the exercise of our brains, I would add. They also notice dangers are greatest for children. Now, one of the aforementioned researchers added in 2019 that, quote, to minimize the potential adverse effects of high-intensity multitasking internet usage, I would suggest mindfulness and focus practice, along with use of internet hygiene techniques, like reducing online multitasking, ritualistic checking behaviors, and evening online activity, while engaging in more in-person interactions. Now, these concerns were recorded at least as far back as 2009, I found in an article from Live Science. They noted as Oxford scientists uh, were quoted as saying that, quote, my fear is that these technologies are infantilizing the brain into a state of small children who are attracted by buzzing noises and bright lights, who have a small attention span and who live for the moment. I often wonder whether real conversation in real time may eventually give way to these sanitized and easier screen dialogues, 
in much the same way as killing, skinning, and butchering an animal to eat, has been replaced by the convenience of packages of meat on the supermarket shelf. The article author noted of himself in 2009 that, quote, I used to have dozens of phone numbers committed to memory. Now that they're all in my BlackBerry, I can't remember only those I'd memorized when I was a child. I don't even know my wife's cell phone or work number. I'm not sure what all that brain capacity is being used for now, other than struggling to focus on writing columns like this while checking email several times and surfing from valid research sites to unrelated pages, detailing the latest condition of Jane Goody, who I'd never heard of until recently, to reaching for my hip when my stomach gurgles, but I think my phone is vibrating. A modern condition called phantom vibration syndrome, by the way. He cites another author in the Atlantic who concedes that he used to spend hours strolling along through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration often starts to drift after two or three pages. I get fidgety, lose the thread, and begin looking for something else to do. I feel as if I'm always dragging my wayward brain back, back to the text. That's not a good news for a book writer like myself. He notes a British newspaper that day points out that students tend no longer to plan essays before starting to write. Thanks to computers and Word, they can edit as they go along. I grew up learning to do an outline on paper before writing any essay or story, a habit that was reinforced in journalism school, and which I still do to this day myself. They quote the aforementioned UCLA neuroscientist uh, who had stated, Perhaps not since early man first discovered how to use a tool has the human brain been affected so quickly and so dramatically. As the brain evolves and shifts its focus toward new technological skills, it drifts away from fundamental social skills. The typical immigrants, digital immigrants, those who grew up before the internet, their brain was trained in completely different ways of socializing and learning, taking step things step by step, like I like to do, and addressing one task at a time. Now, I'd like to refer to one other 2020 citation, which gives suggestions. They, they note that since finding information is so much quicker these days, quote, you may think that you remember a fact, but you're actually remembering where to look it up. The result, according to a 2011 paper published in Science, is that you begin to view the Internet as an extension of your memory. Furthermore, a 2016 paper published in the journal Memory showed that the more you use the Internet to answer questions, the more you rely on it instead of your own memory and critical thinking skills. With time, you begin to rely on it to the point that you store less and less information in your brain. This process is called cognitive offloading. They quote the philosopher Socrates, as was cited in the book Plato on Writing, and this is interesting. He says about this newfangled thing at the time called writing. Uh, Socrates says, if men learn this, it will implant forget forgetfulness in their souls. They will cease to exercise memory because they rely on that which is written, calling things to remembrance no longer from within themselves, but by means of external marks. What you have discovered is a recipe not for memory, but for reminder. So he saw where things were going. They write that, quote, the problem, however, lies in the risk of offloading, not just our factual memory to the Internet, but also our critical thinking. When we rely on our phones to look up facts, it's easy enough to do the same with more complex questions that we should be answering with our critical thinking skills. They add that, quote, 
Defaulting to Google for answers can prevent you from doing the hard work required to learn a subject or skill. It's the process of trying, struggling, and using your brain to find a solution that leads to real learning. The alternative is, at best, an illusion of competence. They assert, quote, if you assume the Internet has the right answer to everything, what will happen when you run into information that's inaccurate, or even worse, deceptive? Without a solid base of critical thinking skills, this information could lead you to make bad decisions. What about when you encounter bad health advice or bad relationship advice, or an article attempting to persuade you of an extreme ideology? If you can't evaluate information critically, then it's easy for others to mislead or even manipulate you. They add, quote, Over-reliance on the Internet can lead you to believe it can answer questions that don't have simple answers. But what about more complex existential questions such as, what should I do with my life? Or how do I find a romantic partner? These searches will still return answers, but they're often superficial and unsatisfying. The broader issue is that life's big questions don't have simple answers. You can't sum them up in a single blog post or a snippet of text. People spend their lives exploring these questions, writing entire books about them. And even then, the answers remain ambiguous. Ultimately, you need to contemplate and answer the big questions for yourself, seeking advice from history's great thinkers along the way. They recommend giving A, at least 15 minutes to solve a problem yourself before seeking help, B, wonder about answers and contemplate before looking them up, to strengthen your brain and logic where it can cre- see where it creatively leads you, and C, use it as a tool to improve efficiency, the internet, but it can degrade your critical thinking skills, prevent you from grappling with questions that don't have a simple answer, and deprive your life of intellectual richness. So, can we take charge of our intellectual life? In summary, in our life we have to carefully ponder, discern, and decide if the things that interact with us A. pose a threat to our well-being, P serve as a distraction to hamstring the accomplishment of our destiny and purpose, C, merely comfort us, refresh us, or inspire us, or D, have potential as a tool for our goals. Every one of these can also turn into a master of us as a life-controlling issue, and we end up doing what it dictates, not vice versa. It's like God told Cain, Sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it with promises of fulfillment and success if you do, if you take charge of the influences on you, both externally and inwardly. The goal of good spiritual pursuits, and even old-fashioned Christianity has this goal when it's stripped of its legalistic dogma, is to liberate, emancipate, and deliver you from everything that enslaves you and robs you of your fulfillment and bright destiny. I implore you to consider every influence and input to you, large and small, and take time to ponder where it falls into these four categories, where it is a taskmaster with its own agenda, and if you can discipline or control it for useful ends to your goals. The Internet is a fantastic tool, but we should not let it rewire our brain and its functioning, even subtly, without our permission, or to the detriment of our task and life satisfaction. So do everything to preserve your brain's precious gifts to focus, concentrate, and contemplate without being led by the nose by some strangers online. That is, if you're not satisfied merely with being a spectator in life and see everything as an amusement and toy, 
are happy with your Facebook-style trivial gossip, but, but if you really want to make a helpful and notable impact in this world before you die. Now, in the next segment, we will consider a more intentionally manipulative device that modifies our reality without our knowledge, the lowly little internet meme. Now, this is a good time for some music for meditation to ponder these heavy matters. Now, I don't have a perfect song to consider uh, the internet and informational uh, impacts on our life, but I do have one that that sort of encourages self-reflection on what the industrial age life of going to work is the central aspect of our life and having capitalistic life goals has on our spiritual and inner satisfaction, and the sooner the later. The song, called Mr. Man, was sung by a painter and decorator known as Allie Meyer, who recorded this and a couple of songs in 1967, with this song and others being unreleased, and he quickly disappeared. His organist, Vincent Crane, later gained fame as the organist of the song Fire by the crazy world of Arthur Brown, in which we will probably hear it another time. Let this long-buried song ask you the questions you need to ask. And then we'll be back in the next segment of the Two Spies Report. back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In our last segment, we explored scientific findings of how the internet age is affecting our ability to process information within our brain. What is stored, or likely not, is memory versus an artificially easily rewritten memory online. The damage done to our focus and concentration to accomplish significant works that demand such, and the ability to solve questions large and small in our own minds, rather than relying on strangers who may have other motives, such as selling us their agendas and very possibly inferior solutions. 
In this segment, we will begin to explore what you might not appreciate as the simplest, most easily underestimated, yet powerful and ancient tool, now energized in multimedia, that of the online meme. Since we're on the topic of internet sourcing of information, let's start with the granddaddy of such, Wikipedia, to give us a cursory introduction to the definition, nature, and history of memes. They note there that a meme is an idea, behavior, or style that spreads by means of imitation from person to person within a culture and often carries symbolic meaning representing a particular phenomenon or theme. A meme acts as a unit for carrying cultural ideas, symbols, or practices. They can be transmitted from one mind to another through writing, speech, gestures, rituals, or other imitable phenomena with a mimic theme. Supporters of the concept regard memes as cultural analogs to genes in that they self-replicate, mutate, and respond to selective pressures. In popular language, a meme may refer to an internet meme, typically an image, that is remixed, copied, and circulated in a shared cultural experience online. Proponents theorize that memes are a viral phenomenon that may evolve by natural selection in a manner analogous to that of biological evolution. Memes do this through the processes of variation, mutation, competition, and inheritance, each of which influences a meme's reproductive success. Memes spread through the behavior that they generate in their host. Memes that propagate less prolifically may become extinct, while others may survive, spread, and, for better or for worse, mutate. They add that, quote, a field of study called memetics arose in the 1990s to explore the concepts and transmissions of memes in terms of an evolutionary model. Criticism from a variety of fronts has challenged the notion that academic study can examine means empirically. However, developments in neuroimaging may make empirical study possible. The word meme itself was coined by Richard Dawkins. Uh, you may familiar the famous uh, secularist atheist uh, uh, spokesman, originating from his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene. He welcomed N.K. Humphrey's suggestion that memes should be considered as living structures, not just metaphorically, and proposed to regard memes as physically residing in the brain. Examples of memes given in Dawkins' books include melodies, catchphrases, fashion, and the technology of building arches. An example of such a unit of cultural transmission was the whole Kilroy was here graffiti craze that went on during World War II all over the world, and people started drawing the image of Kilroy looking over uh, every wall and anywhere else they put the graffiti. Now, a little more from Wikipedia here. Uh, some scholars have asserted that memes are interconnected actually with the media that's used to forward them. Just like biological genes, the more a meme resides in a host, it persists, but it can be superseded by a new rival meme in its same neural space, like a forum board, for example. They can also be mimicked or even go dormant for a while. Their definitions include things like fads or hysterias, copycat crimes, copycat suicides even, or even yawning or laughing when you're exposed to it from others. Some meme analysts even consign religions to being durable types of memes. A 2012 Chinese journal paper noted aspects of good memes, or effective ones. They cite uh, the cognitive psychologist George Miller from back in 1956, who said humans could only hold five to nine pieces of information at a time. 
but each may be bundled pieces or not. So each unit could be a bundle of multiple elements. Thus, they, could, they should be terse or short, and its capacity enlarged of each piece by chunking multiple aspects into a single unit, like a picture being worth a thousand words, for example, with images being a common mimetic theme. They had other features of good memes. One, novelty, or the originality to capture attention. Number two, giving some kind of thrill to the senses. Three, an expressiveness for readers and listeners. Four, a terseness that can be efficiently spread. Five, being familiar enough in aspects for the reader to understand. Number six, easy enough to imitate. Seven, a stable core structure of information that resists mutation. And eight, an informal style. They write, In mimetic evolution, the fittest ideas are not always the truest or most helpful, but the ones best at self-replication. Thus, crash diets spread not because of lasting benefit, but by alternating episodes of dramatic weight loss and slow regain. In its most revolutionary aspect, mimetics ask not how people accumulate ideas, but how ideas accumulate people. Now, the BBC published a very interesting article of additional facets of Internet memes in September 2022. They noted that in 2018 in China, a meme of a rice bunny, which was a roll of rice followed by a bunny, was used on the Internet there to participate and communicate about the women's Me Too movement to evade the state censors. The Chinese pronouncement of those two images is Me Too. They note that memes are their own language and proof of a digital culture and can transcend other cultures and constructive collective identities of people across them with its own stereotypes and its own symbols, just like an alphabet. Many point to the dancing baby as the first meme, but the distracted boyfriend and the doge dog uh, of Elon Musk have become legendary. Back in 2014, Facebook found in their own study 121,605 different variants of one specific meme online across 1.14 million status updates. They note that memes tap into the collective consciousness online and have been referred to as digital folklore or net lore, revealing some of the anxieties and desires people have. They write that, quote, usually the most viral, most loved memes are memes that are about things that are very recent in public memory, and something that was important to many people. Viral memes usually appeal to the most common denominator, and that it should be fun to look at and fun to share. One study found memes sparking a stronger emotional response were more likely to be shared. Many memes are about humorous things, but many are otherwise, such as the war in Ukraine. And studies show that people with depression actually like depression-related memes I guess for supporting commonality and verbalizing their feelings, and was meant for sharing within their community. They note that an academic expert on disinformation states that memes are the modern digital equivalent of propaganda to engage fringe movements and political action. Their visual examples show that still images that depict motion or expression or arrangement, sometimes alongside words, has really become a new language. They remind me of the signal boards that they now use on the sidelines in football games to communicate the plays. 
The online community has really dwarfed mainstream media messages and bypassed the focus and control they once had by means of these memes. Key, key themes are irony, sarcasm, and pointing out the arrogance, weakness, hypocrisy, stupidity, etc. of their targets. They note that TikTok is a particularly a mimetic culture where people, quote, need to kind of play with a given, pre-established set of interactions. Okay, the staff at the magazine of Utah State University mused over the dark side of memes in their culture. It was based upon a talk that uh, USU professor Nick Flan gave called Meme Menace, How Disinformation Spreads on Social Media. He said in it that his, its ideas uh, of memes spread faster on the internet because of advanced artificial intelligence. He says they can be architected using AI techniques to trick people into trusting the information and sharing it across their networks. He envisions the ease of swinging elections, possibly by spreading false memes about suspect polling stations to reduce localized turnout. He clearly shows memes with falsehoods as viruses, and then erases on to chase them down with inoculations of truth, which is as difficult as it is in regular biology. Deep fakes are now the new challenge. It's very easy to show people online who are naked, doing drugs, or in Nazi meetings, and it's sometimes hard to tell. Software development to detect deep fakes will actually be used to make the deep fakes better. Alternatively, important truths and data can be stained with people labeling it as fake news memes and will keep people from reading it. He says we must view our deeply cherished ideas as possibly just viruses somebody else passed on to us and should be inoculated in advance by exposing people to the falseness of ideas before they spread to be proactive in building defenses. He sees an Orwellian future of us being controlled without our knowledge, subtly, unless we intervene now. He says what I've argued in the past and will continue in this series. He says, like me, that I, I think it's worthwhile to think about our convictions. Where do our convictions come from? And our convictions drive our character. They drive our behavior. How do we decide how to believe them? A folklorist professor at the school stated that, that these memes are... Uh, or that they are a kind of detectorist who can easily spot legends, rumors, and conspiracy theories floating in everyday conversations and lurking in posts online because they are trained at recognizing narrative patterns and motifs. In other words, folklorists have a pretty good BS detector or legend detector. She noted that, quote, lives are much easier to monetize, too. And Mark Twain's famous comment that a lie is halfway around the world while the truth is still putting its boots on uh, explains a 2018 MIT study that found that falsehoods spread six times faster on Twitter. So they must be jet-propelled boots. Now, the same professor, folklorist, pr uh, proposes something called a slap test. And this slap test... Uh, for memes and online ideas includes, it's an acronym, S is for scares or shocks. Does a piece of news elicit a strong reaction to shock or scare you? L, logistics. Does an account uh, that they recite rely on a far-fetched set of logistics to be true? 
In other words, is it information like Russian scientists or something that would be impossible to double-check on? A. A-list. Does the narrative involve A-list celebrities or high-profile companies or events? For example, is Bill Gates involved? P. Prejudices. Does the account play into your own confirmation biases or prejudices? Does it demonize some person or group as a bad actor? After doing this and vetting, you should then check fact-checking sites like leadstories.com or factcheck.org, but still always be skeptical. The slap test allows people to slow the lie down by stretching the processing time to consider the veracity of the story before passing it on. She says, when you get on the internet, know that there are people out there who want to hurt you, who want to take advantage of you, who want to steal your money, or... I would say additionally want to exploit you for their cause and agenda, oftentimes veiled in its full manifestation. In our next segment, we will explore even more disturbing matters regarding the intentional use of ritual magical workings, believe it or not, to infuse internet memes with extra power and influence by one well-known in doing such. But now it's time for a break with some music for meditation. This may be one of those regular offbeat musical selections with just faint allusions to our subject matter, but for all of its dated elements, I confess I am a fan of the 1982 film Halloween 3. It's a very polarizing movie for horror fans, with slasher fans who love the regular killer Michael Myers disowning it because it is the only movie in the series that doesn't feature him. It is faithful to John Carpenter's original vision to make each Halloween movie a separate motif, which I loved very much with this film and its Lovecraftian elements, but which they quickly dismissed. It entails a plot by an old-world pagan worshiper to bring a horrifying end to trick-or-treater children, like the old days on Halloween, by the use of magically-powered masks that kill them mercilessly when they witness the Silver Shamrock mask commercial on Halloween night. Now, the following I'm going to play is an edit of the mesmerizing music shown in the commercial, with the meme-like flashing pumpkin image on the screen, increasing in pace and the flash rate of it, until the kids who are watching it on Halloween meet their demise and death very gruesomely. Listen to the monotonous pace in the music that actually goes on after the end of the talking for about another 35 seconds, and then it starts to rise in the second minute with some weird, disturbing music, and maybe it might bring you some uh, nostalgia of seeing that movie, or it will entrance you to check out the commercial that is referring to on YouTube or the movie itself. And afterwards, we will return to the Two Spies Report. Happy, happy Halloween, 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 happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. Happy, happy Halloween, 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 happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. It's time, it's time, time for the big giveaway. Halloween has come. All you lucky kids with silver shamrock masks, gather round your TV set, put on your masks, and watch. All witches, all skeletons, all jack-o'-lanterns, gather round and watch. Watch the magic pumpkin. Watch. Thank you. 
Past report. In our last segment, we explored the impact internet memes have on our thinking, without being aware of it, and with few safeguards to vet its information, with the vast persuasive powers it has, made by people who know what buttons to push and mo- motivating others to action. Upon consideration, one could think of these memes with symbolic images, figures, with facial expressions and orientation, sometimes accompanied with some words, like spiritual icons sigils or talismans, runes or idols, and most akin to something like the tarot card deck, to read immediate and particularly timely meaning from them. In fact, this is what one who is known in the information sphere as a practicing occult magician and Satanist actually purports to do by infusing memes with spiritually empowered elements and ritually infused symbols to influence people subconsciously as it spreads like wildfire. Now, I cannot remember how I came across mention of the seminal book, Occult Mimetics, and its author, uh, Tarl Warwick, about a year and a half ago. But I remember it was considered a very important work from the sources I had. Now, he is well-known online for his practicing magic, Satanism, and ever-changing political activity, and is taken very seriously by many. But I cannot vouch if he is just a pitiful, confused soul or something more substantive. But his influence is unmistakable. So I'll let you judge if his comments from his 2016 work are worthwhile food for thought. Now, in his book, Occult Mimetics, Reality Manipulation, from 2016, from Tarl Warwick, who's known online as Sticks Hexenhammer 666. Uh, this is a very small book by this person who uses memes online and actually constructs them, according to him, uh, for magical workings in his understanding. So he exploits this using magic to infuse them. Some of his quotes from this book uh, in the early pages says, quote, through manipulating this tendency to synthesize new ideas and descriptions, Mimetics in the occult sense is accomplished. This topic can be used to exert mass social and political change. It is hidden in plain sight, formerly known to mesmerists and thus skilled and those skilled in rhetoric and philosophy. Mimetic occultism is the deliberate use of mimetics in the otherwise mundane secular sense and the manipulation of communication in order to cause a reflective change in the viewer, listener, or beholder of what is uh, between uh, altered, manipulated, or communicated. All propaganda stems from this concept. Newspeak is an example of mimetic manipulation. In fact, that goal is always the definition of magic, uh, practical magic. Regarding the, the activity of sonic and spoken methodology, and in fact, he'd authored a book, Sonic Occultism, Music and Magic, 
He says that mimetics, paired with speech and music, is particularly potent. Ideas can be transferred without speech. Human minds also place significance upon gesture and symbolism. One may think of the occult or, or strictly manipulative variant of mimetics as, first, to manipulate the rate and type of spread of an otherwise mundane concept or idea for some spiritual purpose, whether directly or indirectly. And, and his third was to the inadvertent use of magic, directly or indirectly, that happens to manifest itself in a mimetic sense. Now, he notes that Aleister Crowley, as we've mentioned before as the wickedest man alive at one time, defined magic as, quote, the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. The art of sonic magic, which often goes hand-in-hand hand with mimetics when the mimetic practice in question is not solely a captioned image, priorly humorous in nature, is of great import in the occult. When a person practices mimetics, whether the information they're trying to disseminate comes in the form of an image, video, sound, or written script, they are manufacturing a life form whose entire goal is the same as a life form within biology. It must be able to replicate and spread as well as reproduce and it tends to mutate over time. Mimetics allows the spread of information which is taboo, forbidden, or considered by whatever mainstream zeitgeist exists to be unacceptable subject material. An overt occult image will presumably be spread only by a cultist, limiting its number of hosts and hindering its own replication. Therefore, now listen, these occult memes, he says, which are not overtly occult, but are disguised by design, or inadvertently, outcompete the others, spread further and are more visible. If the purpose is propaganda, remaining hidden is important, which is why a concept everybody needs to understand. There is a reason the governments of the world field untold millions of fake profiles all across social media. Even most occultists do not know of my acts, talking about himself in this manner, because to reveal this would damper, perhaps, the spread of further mimetic maneuvers. These are all quotes from him. Okay, there are wars, and he talks about the online mimetic war. He says sometimes mimetics become an actual war. Sometimes a successful mimetic front, a style of cartoon, a specific image, is countered by a competing image or video, which has been crafted with the sole purpose of destroying the former. It's a war between viruses where evolution determines who wins. To destroy a competing meme... He says, I will take that image and alter it to invert the meaning of your original encapsulation. I am attempting to tweak its presentation in such a way that my antivirus of sorts, by competing uh, party in this miniaturized electronic war, is more effective in replicating itself. The image more able to infect human minds will probably win. At no time is the emetic adept interested in attempting to influence the opinions of the other party, competing party. Instead, the mimetic adept is competing with this other individual for the opinions of the as-yet-undecided onlookers. First, understand the audience of any particular site and the reigning zeitgeist of that subculture when you do such wars. Now, he mentions a mimetic success story regarding 4chan, Keck, Geb, Pepe, and Shadali, uh, those of you probably know a lot about this and are more online and social forums. I've certainly seen Keck and Pepe the Frog frequently in alt-right activities. Now, he wrote this in 2016. He says, As Ebola began to spread out from Sierra Leone two years ago, and as it quickly began ending dozens of lives a day, 
A general epidemic was declared as occultists descended to declare the risk of Armageddon. As this self-fulfilling prophecy continued, a collective cultural meltdown ensued, partially because of the rise of semi-ironic, semi-realistic cults on the internet, which proceeded to embody the epidemic in the form of a dubiously legal anime character quickly named Ebola-chan. Now, people are Ebola-chan. People began taking pictures of makeshift altars to it, which they put out on the internet to frank, frighten and shock people with. The collective will was strengthened in a vampiric manner by even the negative reactions of onlookers. This was all by design. I fanned the flames myself. This was done to shock, frighten, and power up other ritualism. Like a parasite in the guts of a sickened animal, Ebola-chan caused segments of mainstream culture to consume the same and vomit it back out, infecting with greater speed. This was the first serious attempt by the occult community to make use of a larger, generally politicized audience for magical workings. Now he continues, The new era of occult memetics is currently ongoing and spreading with ten times the haste of Ebola-chan. This second round of memetic force. Little do they realize this innocuous frog Peppy is an egregore of unimaginable force. Now if you rem when you see that frog Peppy all the time, think about that. Those who do not believe in the occult will probably soon come to realize this reality. This can displace the sense of the mind and lead to a literal breakdown. It can lay waste to you. I am myself playing a role in the second wave of social media occultism. The first wave of release was largely centered around apocalyptic imagery and pestilence. The second wave began with calls for revolution. He claims that people had noticed a hieroglyph of this Egyptian deity Kek resembled a man sitting at a computer with a DNA strand coming from it. It was also represented by a frog in this ancient uh, hieroglyphs. And so they decided they wanted to use this deity for, uh, for it would be influencing our political system. And so they began adopting it. Political cartoons began to exhibit the smug Pepe, a no-caption image. A 1980s band Pepe had a frog with a magic wand on their album with a track 5 minutes 55 seconds long. It acts through repeats of numbers, which are stages between segments of chaos. Their song talked of, quote, being spawn of rebels and confusion. Now, this same author discovered the number five in Kabbalah was associated with the Sephiroth Gebura, who coincided with the concept of young male warriors in social stress. Gebura is also numbered two, uh, 216, six times six times six in the Kabbalah numerology. And taking this, they began to infuse this... Uh, um, Pepe uh, actually into their, like say, the alt-right, the young warrior movement. Now there's a second Egyptian deity, Geb, that's represented by Doug or, Duck or Goose that's common online. It's represented by a hieroglyph in the ancient world that looks like a man seated at a computer as well. Uh, it looks very much like it with a goose or duck emerging from him. Uh, he writes, he says, Never in my life have I seen any time period marked by so many examples of clear-cut synchronicity. I have to believe that forces were unlocked by a former dabbling that caused this situation to arise. Now, chaos takes hold and events spiral on as they will, agitated by the collective will of thousands of occultists and millions or tens of millions of others beholding these same workings. Now, this was written at the time of the 
very substantial and memorable 2016 national election. Just remember that this gentleman I quoted from is a ritual occultist and former Satanist who allies now with Trump, the alt-right, libertarianism, anti-immigration, European nationalistic groups, is a Holocaust skeptic and a Manson supporter, and is influential in all of those areas. I guess, friends, that's another edition of the Two Spies Report. In our next show, we will explore an even more disturbing story of a mysterious institute who takes things to the next level in cahoots with our military intelligence establishment, based upon recently declassified reports. Please send any comments about the show or questions to the Two Spies Report at gmail.com. For questions of a general nature for us to share on the air, uh, let us know if it's not to be shared on broadcast. I don't have time to respond to all of them, but uh, we'll try to uh, hit them on air. Please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN, at 107.1 and 103.7 FM on the dial, or streaming live online at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Until then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and being willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road with the good book in my hand Telling all my friends about the promised land Of the joy they'll find there and the peace of mind Telling all my brothers